Uh, every week uh, we go to the scriptures uh, because they're a person work of Jesus most clearly revealed. Uh, this week we're looking at John 20 as we uh, continue this short series that we're in uh, in the Gospel of John through uh, the season of Easter. Hear the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold, the if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hands and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Peace be with you. Good morning, Sojourn. Uh, my name is Paul. It's wonderful to be with you uh, this morning, preaching God's word. If you are new here, I am one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Uh, it's a joy to welcome you here. We're glad that you're here with us. As Brandon said at the beginning of the gathering, uh, this Sunday is the third Sunday in a season called Eastertide, which is a season in the church calendar where we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus on that first Easter. Uh, which is the day that we are in, in our story for today. In last week's sermon, Dodds, uh, one of our other pastors preached for us, uh, excuse me, sorry. Dodds preached for us on the first half of John chapter 20, uh, which brought us to the garden where Jesus was buried. And we zoomed in on the significance of Jesus appearing first to Mary upon his resurrection and then sending Mary to the rest of the disciples. In a sense, Mary was the first apostle sent to the other apostles. And now we come to the scene in the second half of John chapter 20 where Jesus comes to the rest of his disciples and there's a lot going on in these verses. John is bringing together many of the themes that have carried throughout the whole gospel. And as we look into our text, here's my plan for this morning. First, we're going to look at what John is doing, I think, in this passage. 
Second, we're going to look at the invitation that Jesus is making to his disciples and to you and to me. And then third, we're going to zoom in on one particular detail about the kind of church I think that Jesus is inviting us to be through his example. And so let's jump in. Our passage for today, John 20, verses 19 through 31, is divided into three sections. Two scenes of Jesus with his disciples, and then a third being a concluding statement. And let me read the first scene, beginning here in verse 19. It says this, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Stop there. In this first point, let's make some observations. For this morning, I want to point out four particular details that I think will help us understand what John is getting at in this passage. There are many more, but I will pick four for today. To set the scene for us just a little bit, uh, the doors had, of course, been locked, as you heard read, for fear of the Jews. The Jews had been the ones who had conspired to crucify and kill Jesus. And so it would make sense for them to try to pick off, to search out and pick off the 12 who were his most loyal disciples. And so... With that said, even as they were concerned about the Jews, John's emphasis here is probably on something different in including that detail about the locked doors, particularly given the repetition of that phrase in verse 19 and then again in verse 26. With those words, the doors were locked, immediately followed by, and Jesus came and stood among them. The emphasis is probably instead on the miraculous appearance of Jesus rather than on their fear. So with his resurrected body, the grave couldn't hold Jesus and nor could a locked door prevent his coming. But as we continue reading, there's another phrase that's repeated in this passage that's the first thing that I wanna point out for us. It's the first thing that Jesus says when he arrives. If you notice, Jesus says the phrase, peace be with you twice in this scene. The phrase, which comes from the traditional Hebrew greeting, shalom, shalom aleichem, would have been so normally used that the disciples would have thought little of it the first time he said it. It's just another way of saying hello. When he repeated it though, this would have prompted the reflective among them to consider that Jesus was probably doing something. And he was, he was recalling a promise that he had made earlier to the disciples. Back in chapter 14 of the gospel of John, Jesus had promised to leave his peace with the disciples. He said this, John 14, starting in verse 25, he said, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so in saying, peace be with you, peace be with you, Jesus is calling back to this promised peace and speaking it into this moment of fear and uncertainty for his disciples. The picture we're, giving, we're given here is, is a picture of a calm settledness, even in the midst of hardship and conflict, that from here forward will go with the disciples of Jesus wherever they are, in whatever circumstance in which they find themselves. Picture Jesus in the storm, uh, when his disciples are losing their minds and he is asleep in the bottom of the boat. They wake him up and calmly he says, peace, be still, and the storm stops. Picture 
the terrified parents of the child oppressed by a demon or the terrified parents of a girl who is about to die. And Jesus' calm, peace-filled response, do not fear. This is the kind of peace that Jesus is leaving with his disciples who are locked in a room and concerned for their safety once again. And this is the first thing I want to see. The, the first theme that has appeared earlier in the Gospel of John that is coming to bear here in this final section, this, this closing section of the body of John's Gospel. The second theme that appears in our passage that I want us to see is joy. Back in John chapter 16, starting in verse 20, Jesus had said this to his disciples before his death. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, Jesus says, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So fast forward to our text here in chapter 20. We see that when Jesus comes to stand among them, saying, peace be with you, he shows them his hands and his side to demonstrate that it's really him. And then the text says, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. That word is the same as the word for rejoicing and joy from chapter 16. The second thing that we see that John includes in this passage that is a reflection of a theme that, 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 that appears earlier in the Gospel of John is joy. When his disciples see him alive again, after the anguish of watching Jesus' death and burial, uh, their hearts rejoice with the joy that they'd been promised, with the joy that will never be taken away from them. The third and fourth details that I want to point out go together. Third, from this place of being filled with peace, Jesus gives them a commission. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And then he says this, he says, as the father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. That's the third thing. And then the fourth thing is he breathes on them, verse 21, saying, receive the Holy Spirit. So third, he gives them this commission. And fourth, he gives them, breathes on them. It says, receive the Holy Spirit. And this last detail, Jesus breathing on his disciples to receive the Holy Spirit is an interesting detail to be sure. Uh, but taken into context of the rest of the details we've read, if we reflect for just a moment, we will realize that we've heard these things before. In the first part of John chapter 20, if you recall from last week's sermon, Dodd spent some time exploring the significance of Jesus' appearance to Mary in the gardener and the fact that Mary mistook Jesus for the gardener in the garden. And here in our passage, we're not in the garden with Mary anymore, but it seems as though John is still subtly but quite intentionally pointing us back to the first garden, the Garden of Eden. We have the breathing of the Spirit of God onto the disciples, along with a new commission given to them who had just received the peace of Christ and had found an everlasting joy in seeing their risen Lord. These things bring us back to the Garden of Eden where God breathed life into the dust of the earth to create humanity. He gave them the first great commission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He placed them in the garden, the place of shalom, of perfect peace, so that they could enjoy God and one another. When John says that the first of these two scenes happens on the first day of the week and the second happens on the eighth day, these details also point us back to the creation account, the seven days of creation. The reference to the giving of the Holy Spirit here is kind of an interesting thing to consider in relation to the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, which hasn't happened yet. If you're familiar with the story of Acts and the eventual coming of the Spirit 
uh, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. You might be wondering, is John saying here that the disciples received the Holy Spirit from Jesus in this room and then the rest of the people received the Holy Spirit uh, at Pentecost in Jerusalem? In short, probably not. Instead, we can think of John as describing the gift of the Holy Spirit as this progressive gift when we trace it through Christ's death in which several of the gospels refer to his death as the moment where he yielded up his spirit. As we trace the Holy Spirit through the death, resurrection, and the arrival of spirit at Pentecost, as one commentator put it, Jesus' dying gasp becomes a life-giving breath here in John 20, which then swells to a mighty wind at the event of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So what is, what is John doing in this passage? John is painting a beautiful picture for us. Right? He's tying together themes from throughout his gospel, which are themes that run throughout the Bible. He's hearkening back to the Garden of Eden to show us that the life of the resurrected Christ marks the beginning of an entirely new age, which is nothing short of a new creation dawning, breaking into the world through his resurrection, and which is soon to be multiplying in the world through his newly commissioned disciples. And that brings us, secondly, to the invitation, I believe, that Jesus is making to his disciples and to you and to me in this text. In verse 21, with the way that Jesus gives them this version of the Great Commission, which is briefer than the other gospel accounts, we are given a unique and important perspective on what it means that Jesus sends us into the world. Jesus says, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. In other words, Jesus says, consider how the Father sent the Son in that same way the Son is sending the church. There are a few things that I want to point out here. To begin with, Jesus makes it clear here that there is a continuity with, between his mission and the mission of his disciples. It's not that Jesus did one thing and we have been entrusted with this totally separate thing to do in the world. The emphasis Jesus is making is on the continuity between his mission and the mission of his disciples. It's not as though Jesus didn't do his job. Instead, he was sent as the firstborn among many brothers who would be entrusted with the very same mission, with continuing that mission. Or otherwise, he was the first, first fruits of a plentiful harvest. And he has sent his disciples into the world to labor in the planting, watering, cultivating, and harvesting of the rest. Back in John 14, Jesus had said to his disciples, John 14, verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. You've probably heard that verse before. Greater things will you do. In his time on earth, Jesus was confined to a particular place at a particular time, and his mission was focused in one country, in one region, and then really was pointed towards one city, Jerusalem, where he would die as the sacrifice for his people. When he says, greater things will you do, in the very least, Jesus has in mind that his followers would take his message of salvation and his message of the kingdom of God and bring it to the nations. This is the fulfillment of the glorious promise from Habakkuk chapter 2, one of the prophets, which says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Greater things than these will you do, Jesus told his followers. And in John 16, Jesus had said, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. There, Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit, who would be sent to help them. And to help them in doing what? 
to help them in becoming the answer to the prayer that Jesus has already taught them to pray. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's the answer to that prayer? God will send his people to do that. We are building what Jesus calls the kingdom of God, extending the knowledge of the glory of the Lord in the world. This is the work that Jesus is commissioning his disciples to do. Jesus was sent, as John recorded in chapter 1, as the image of the invisible God in order to reveal God to the world. He was the firstborn of all creation, and here he is the firstborn from the dead in the new creation, inviting us into the resurrection life that he now enjoys. And so why did Jesus come? John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible for good reason, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In our passage, skipping forward to verse 31, John 20, verse 31, John says, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If we are to be sent as Jesus was sent into the world, we must look at what he was sent to do and why did Jesus come? Why was he sent? He came that we might have life, that we might have eternal life. And in order to understand what this is truly talking about, there's a question that I think we need to answer and come with me for a moment. The question we need to answer is this, what does the Bible mean when it refers to eternal life? That's one of those terms that we use so frequently and we probably don't often understand exactly what we're talking about when we use the phrase. How would you answer the question, what is eternal life? For the answer to that question, again, we have to go back to the very beginning of the Bible. The first man and woman that God created from the dust of the earth into whom God breathed the breath of life, this first man and woman enjoyed eternal life with God. Now, what does that mean? Let me ask it this way. Were the first man and woman immortal by nature? Were they immortal, that is, in their very nature, not able to die? I would say that the answer there is probably no. Even before sin entered the world, God gave the man and woman a command with a warning of death as a result for disobedience. He'd said in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then when we fast forward to Genesis chapter 3 and see exactly how the Bible records death as entering the world, we don't see any indication that their physical nature has changed. Instead, we see that they lost access, to put it one way, to the tree that gave them the life force required to sustain eternal life with God. We get the image of a branch that is cut off from a tree or, or a flower that's clipped off from a bush. It's no different in its, in its composition after it's been cut off. It's still the same composition. It's got the same DNA and everything. But the life-giving force has left. And even though it will live for a time, eventually it will fade off and die. Chapter 3 closes with God saying this. Chapter 3 of Genesis says this in verses 23 and 24. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden toward the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Stick with me for a moment. 
to be with God was to have access to the life-sustaining nourishment that is available in God's presence. When sin entered the world, which first and foremost separated the man and the woman from God, the reign of life with God gave way to the reign of sin and death. But hope wasn't lost. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans, Romans that, that death reigned from Adam to Moses. So what happened with Moses? God appeared to Moses and through Moses, he gave his people the law, which was a wonderful gift because in it, God once again presented a very similar choice to his people. He said, here's the way to life once more. In his conclusion to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible are called the Torah or the law. At the end of Deuteronomy is a conclusion to the law. Moses says this in chapter 30. He says, see, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, then you shall live and multiply. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Does that sound familiar? In a way that almost serves as a model for John's gospel. Right? Moses has led God's people in their deliverance from slavery in the story of the Exodus. And then after giving the law, he closes with words that say, here is what you must do. Here are the words you must hear in order that you might find life. In John's gospel, John has led his people in the great act of deliverance. And then John, in his closing words here in our passage, turns to address his readers, saying essentially the same thing. These words are written so that you may believe in Jesus. And in believing in him, you might find life. So to put these things side by side, in the Garden of Eden, at the first creation, eating wrongly of the tree of knowledge of good and evil led to the reign of death. At Mount Sinai, with Moses delivering the law, in a story of new creation itself, the law which set before God's people life and death, blessing and curse, proved to be impossible for God's wayward children to obey and instead pointed all of God's people forward to the day when God would send someone to deliver them from this body of death. And then here in the book of John, who immediately upon the resurrection of Jesus brings us back to a garden, infuses his text with language pointing to new creation. John is finally able to point us to this wonderful statement that has waited for ages to be spoken. I have written these things so that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name and you may have it today. The eternal life, which, was, which has been elusive ever since the garden is now available through belief in Jesus Christ. Why is there so much talk of fruit throughout the Bible? Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply that they might fill the earth with life. Jesus came so that he might, through his death and resurrection, be the first seed germinating in this new creation, growing into a vine into which we can be grafted by faith so that we might once again be plugged into the life-giving force that gives us access to eternal life so that we can then bear fruit so that we can nourish and bring life to the world around us. So when Jesus says in verse 21 of our passage, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, we remember that Jesus was sent as the image of the invisible God to reveal God's glory, to shine light into the darkness. And John tells us in his prologue, John chapter one, in Jesus, in him was the life and the life was the light of men, the glory of the Lord, which enlightens humankind, also enlivens humankind because the life is the light of men. And that is the same mission that Jesus entrusts to us. As Jesus revealed God's glory to the world, bringing life, 
He sends his disciples into the world to make him known, which is what brings life to the world. In John 17, which is known as the high priestly prayer that Jesus prays for us on the night before he was betrayed, Jesus says something similar to what he says in our passage. Listen to, this is verse 18 from John 17. Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So in other words, God sent Jesus into the world to reveal his glory. And Jesus prays for the sending of his disciples to do the same, that we would reveal his glory to the world. So in a sense, it's not just about doing the things that Jesus says, while it certainly is that. It's also about being the thing that Jesus says we are. We are his very body, both enjoying and embodying the glorious presence of God in the world in a way that brings life. As one commentator put it, the disciples are to make known Jesus in the same way as he made known the Father, not just as emissaries bearing his message, but as the embodied revelation of his person. The gift of Jesus' spirit is that which equips them to be such a manifestation of his presence in the world. It will be as the disciples love one another in the peace of Jesus' spirit that his presence will be made known in them and they will fulfill their commission, end quote. So this is the invitation. Jesus' commission in verse 21 of our passage doesn't just draw parallels between his mission and ours. Jesus deliberately makes his mission the model for ours. In following Jesus, we are embodying his presence in the world, which is nothing less than the glorious presence of God, which brings life and nourishment to the world. As we live lives marked by the love, peace, and joy of Christ alongside one another, extending that same love, joy, and peace to the world around us, as ordinary as it may seem, we are taking God up on his invitation to participate in the work of new creation, bringing the very presence of God to bear in a world around us with words of life. So this is what life is, and this is the calling of the church. And as John has told us, the way into this life is faith. Belief in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Which brings me to the final point that I want us to see, an important detail that I don't want us to miss from this passage for us this morning. Let's look for a moment at Thomas. Let me read Jesus' appearance to Thomas from verses 24 to 29. It says this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not, yet, who have not seen and yet have believed. You may be familiar with the story of Thomas, doubting Thomas as he's often referred to. Uh, the particular detail that I want to notice uh, this morning is how Jesus engages with Thomas. 
it's easy to look at Thomas and think, man, Thomas should have just received the witness of the other disciples and believed. Silly Thomas. I've heard it characterized many times this way. But what's interesting is that that is not how Jesus treats Thomas. When we look at these two scenes of Jesus appearing to his disciples, we see the exclusive purpose of this second scene and this second miraculous appearance of Jesus to his disciples is for Thomas's sake alone. Jesus comes again and says, peace be with you. And then he turns right to Thomas, verse 27. He says, put your finger here, see my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, my dear friend, but believe. My dear friend is not in the original text. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus comes back and deals gently and lovingly with Thomas's doubts. If you think about it, we're told that Thomas wasn't there the first time. Imagine for just a moment, if you would, what those eight days would have been like for Thomas. Seems like all of these others had this personal experience with Jesus. Why not me? Why would Jesus have chosen a moment when I wasn't there to reveal himself to them? If we pause and think for a moment, we might begin to understand why Thomas doesn't believe. But then Jesus comes just for him. I don't know what your story of coming to faith has looked like or is looking like right now. You may have heard stories of people having wonderful personal experiences with God, things that made you think, yes, if I'd experienced that, I'd believe too. You might have heard stories of people and thought, yes, if only I could experience that, I wouldn't be wrestling the way that I'm wrestling. But did you see what Thomas did with his doubts? He said them aloud. He didn't just hear their stories and nod, right? They came to him and said, we have seen the Lord. And rather than just saying, yeah, that's great and staying quiet and going along with them, he told them his problem. He said, I don't believe you. John doesn't indicate for us that Thomas was ashamed of his disbelief. He was honest. There's at least two things I wanna take away from this moment. First, if you have doubts, the question I'd ask you is who have you told? Have you kept them to yourself? And now, of course, God can break through. He doesn't need you to say things aloud in order to break through and reveal to you what is true. I don't want to put that kind of pressure. But with that said, if you're reading these same words from the Bible that I'm reading, why not say them out loud? Why not get them in the open? Maybe even ask the people around you to pray for you for those very things. You have no need to be ashamed of your questions. Secondly, there's another important detail that I don't want us to miss here. Look with me at verse 26. It says that eight days later, Jesus' disciples were inside again. And listen to this. And Thomas was with them. Pause. So eight days later, after what? After Jesus appeared to them, and then Thomas came back, and they said, we've seen him. And Thomas said, I don't believe you. It's eight days after that, and Thomas was still with them. Somehow, even after Thomas expresses a disbelief in perhaps the most important historical detail of the Christian faith, the community of the disciples is such that Thomas still feels welcome, still wants to be in the room with them. And here's my question. Would that happen here, Sojourn? Would this happen in your parish? Let me put it this way. Think about how the disciples wouldn't have responded. They, would, they wouldn't have said, well, that's too bad, Thomas. I guess you can't be here with us anymore. 
They wouldn't have jumped down his throat and, and say, how dare you say such a thing? That they wouldn't have gotten defensive and said, Thomas, you can't tell me what I did or didn't see. They wouldn't have blocked him out or made him feel silly or unwanted saying, sorry, Thomas, we just don't talk about that kind of thing in here. Over the course of the following seven days, there would have undoubtedly been more conversations. Thomas would have kept saying, no, unless I see him for myself, I won't believe it. The disciples would have kept saying, well, we've seen him and we're telling you he's alive. It's not as though someone would have said, well, Thomas, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm the crazy one. No, we're, we're, we see here that the witness of the disciples is firm and one of conviction. Verse 25, we have seen the Lord. But they would have welcomed Thomas to continue with them. They would have continued to engage with him, to love him, to welcome him, trusting that somehow God would reveal himself to Thomas. And then wouldn't you know it, eight days later, Jesus comes back and goes right up to Thomas. And Thomas, who had started at this place of doubt, winds up being the one who gives the highest confession of all of Jesus' disciples throughout the book of John. My Lord and my God. Verse 28. We aren't told by John, why Thomas was absent. But in the words of one commentator, in the providence of God, his absence and subsequent coming to faith have generated one of the great Christological confessions in the New Testament. Christology being the study of who Jesus is. And think about it. John could have used the voice of any of the other disciples. Right? He could have used any of the other disciples who never had doubt to say, my Lord and my God, but he didn't. He waits and he uses the voice that we probably weren't expecting. What is John doing? He's probably doing a lot of things. At least one of those things is that he's showing us that there is a place at the table with Jesus for those who doubt and for those who have questions. The Apostle Thomas went on to start a church planting movement in Southern Asia that absolutely exploded. When someone comes to you with their questions, with their wrestles or with their outright disbelief, you never know. You could be having a conversation that God will use for generations to come. Sojourners, are you prepared to welcome someone who doubts even the most fundamental claims of Christianity, not just into the same room with you, but into a real and personal relationship with you? Are you ready for someone to look at you and say, I hear you, but I just don't believe what you believe? And then still say, well, I'm, I'm glad you're here. We're in a cultural moment, guys, that runs absolutely counter to this kind of community. It feels as though everything is becoming more and more black and white and that you're either in or you're out. You either care for immigrant children in this way or you don't care for them at all. You either care for black lives in this way or you don't care for them at all. You either care for the constitution in this way or you must not care about it. You either love our country this way or you must hate it. Right? You either are living in fear of the virus or living a life of faith or you're either wearing a mask in public or you're, you're a selfish fool. Brothers and sisters, the list goes on and we cannot buy into the cultural way of talking about things that we disagree about. It's hard, it's hard, hard work to be gentle with one another and with those around us. It requires the help of the spirit and it requires practice. We're going to try and we're going to get it wrong and we're gonna to have to apologize. But I hope that we are quick to apologize 
because being gentle like this is something that we must do. We have been made the embodiment of God, the temple, the physical presence of God in the world. And we've been commissioned to display God's persona and character before a watching world. And we have been filled with the spirit and empowered to do so. The question is, are we embodying this presence in such a way that we are a church that would have welcomed Thomas? Are we a church, excuse me, are we a church that is actively welcoming the Thomases who are already among us? Listen, God is not worried about people getting things wrong with him. Right? Jesus isn't stressed as he comes to address Thomas and neither should you be. I've had the privilege of being invited into some unique places in my life. I've been in a room in a mosque with Muslim men praying. I've been in apartments with Muslim families in conversations about our belief systems and talking about where they come to a head. I've had the honor of being to Jewish synagogues. I've even been allowed to preach the gospel in a Jewish synagogue to a group of Jews. Of course, we didn't call it preaching the gospel, but then I had the chance to speak afterwards with members at that synagogue who asked questions about my beliefs as an evangelical pastor. And then they expressed their offense at hearing my evangelical perspective that I do hope and pray that they come to faith in Jesus as Messiah. I'm friends with some of these rabbis. I'm friends with a couple of imams. In fact, we have another group call coming up this Tuesday morning with some of the rabbis and imams who've invited me into these places. Even in those friendships, and I consider them close friendships. They're dear friends of mine. They know that I think that they're wrong about religion, and I know that they think that I'm wrong about religion. A couple of them are universalists, so they wouldn't want me to describe them as dogmatically as that, but I know they think I'm wrong. And that's fine. Even when I'm surprised by it, even when I'm tempted to talk past what would be gentle and lovingly, loving, excuse me, the spirit reminds me that I shouldn't be surprised by this kind of disagreement. God is not surprised by it. God has been misunderstood by people just about as long as there have been people to misunderstand things about him. And he wants his people to engage with grace and truth, both conviction and gentleness, to be his embodiment in the world, following in Jesus's footsteps. And Jesus came not to condemn, but to invite. You and I have not been sent into the world to condemn, but to invite. Jesus, when hanging out on the cross, looking out at people who are mocking him, spitting at him, making fun of him, throwing things at him. He looked out, and do you remember what he said? He prayed for them. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the line this whole Easter season that has been ringing in my mind. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here in our passage, the risen Christ doesn't bring judgment to Thomas. He draws near to them. He draws close, and he says, come and see. Come in touch. Do not disbelieve, dear Thomas, but believe. And in Thomas's response, it's as though the entire Gospel of John has been aimed at enabling us to come to this point of confession along with him ourselves, my Lord and my God. In theater, there's this term called the fourth wall, breaking the fourth wall. You might be familiar with it. There's three walls, of course, in a theater, the back of the stage and then the two sides and then the front wall, the fourth wall is open, invisible, so that the audience can see into the story that is being told. Breaking the fourth wall is what happens when a character in the story turns to the audience to address them personally, right? And it's usually done intentionally for some particular purpose. In theater, it's usually for something like a, a, a piece of humor or a narrator. 
giving a word of narration. Here, it is, though in, it is as though in Thomas's confession, the fourth wall of the gospel is torn down and Jesus turns directly to us to address us personally. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And John follows in step. He says, I've written these things to bring you to this point of confession so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thomas did not yet have the Holy Spirit. The disciples did not yet have the Holy Spirit, which would arrive in its fullness at Pentecost. We are looking right now at what's called eyewitness testimony. And this is the eyewitness testimony without which the Christian faith wouldn't exist. But after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we see immediately the beginning of thousands upon thousands of people beginning to hear the testimony of these first eyewitnesses. And through their testimony by the power of the Holy Spirit, they are brought to faith. And Jesus says, blessed are you who have believed and yet have not seen. As Jesus says, blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. In the words of one commentator, blessed then are those who cannot share Thomas's experience of sight, but who in part because they read of Thomas's experience come to share Thomas's faith. For us, faith comes not by sight, but from what is heard or read. And what is heard comes by the word or the declaration of Christ. Indeed, that is why John himself has written as he proceeds to make explicit, end quote. Brothers, sisters, friends, we are at no disadvantage to Thomas and the disciples here. With the presence of the Spirit, as we say each week, we are able to open the scriptures because we believe that it is there that the person and work of Christ are most clearly revealed for us. See in this passage what Christ has done to bring about the new creation and his words of invitation to you and to me, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Search the scriptures that by them you might see Jesus for who he is and that you might find life in believing. And may we together engage with one another and with a doubting and disbelieving world with love and gentleness and patience as the Holy Spirit continues his patient work of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. May it be so, Sojourn. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. And thank you for this, your word. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence among us. Lord, I pray that you would cause all of the hearers of this sermon to hear the greater sermon that you preach. Holy Spirit, I pray that if there's anything that I said that is unhelpful, that you would graciously omit it from all of our memories that you would help us to hold fast and remember only what is true and what is from you through your word. We thank you for this morning. I pray that you would make us a gentle people with one another. I pray that you would help us to be patient and hardworking in our practice of that kind of life together. Pray that you would alleviate any fears that we have of being wrong or hearing wrong things and needing to jump down people's throats. I pray that you'd help us to avoid those temptations and just fix our eyes on you who, when you were accused, stood silent. And when you were hung on that cross, rather than responding with anger, you said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I pray that you would give us your heart for the world around us. That you would give us your heart for one another. That you would make us one even as you are one so that we can display your glory 
and through that, bring your life into the world with us. Pray that we will be a people of life, living in your resurrection life this Easter, Easter season for your glory, for the good of our neighbors. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.